Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We're already well into 2018. We've had a cabinet reshuffle in Britain, the publication of an explosive book about Donald Trump in America. The political world is turning and we're going to talk about the Reformation. As they say on other podcasts, stay with us. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. I'm delighted to say I've got Helen Thompson and John Norton with me today. As you'll have heard last week, Helen has been reading Dermot McCulloch's book about the Reformation and is keen to talk about the echoes now from then. And as we also discussed last time, at the end of last year, John published 95 theses about the new religion, we'll come on to that, of technology. And we're going to try and tie these two things together. We're going to make a link back to the Reformation, but we're also going to talk about the Church of Facebook. We'll get there, I hope. We're going to try. And it's raining. It's not quite biblical rain, but it's not far off. So this is what we know as my drip warning. If you hear a pitter-patter, that's what it is. So Helen, you, you touched on this a bit when we were talking about some of our favourite books from last year. And we'll, we'll, we'll start big and then we'll try and zoom in on, we'll get to Zuckerberg, to coin a phrase from John from Gutenberg to Zuckerberg. What are the big echoes that you see when you read about the Reformation? What gives you that kind of frisson of, wow, it could be now? I think that what stands out primarily is the nature of the rebellion that the Reformation was. You know, the Roman Catholic Church was an elite-led spiritual and political entity that made a claim to supranational authority. It was very wealthy. It had the power to extract money from other states, from churches, from individuals through the sale of indulgences. And what we see is in the Reformation is a series of first spiritual and then political rebellions against that authority that turns quite quickly, at least in the, the Holy Roman Empire, which is in part a version of Germany and Switzerland, into rebellions against established political authority. And then essentially later on in the Reformation we see the rejection of papal authority in England, so the first monarch that rejects papal authority is King Henry VIII of England in 1533. And I think there's also something just in the atmosphere of it. It's it's a time in which there seems to be this overriding problem in Europe, which is the rise of the Ottomans. There's a point in the middle of the 1520s where essentially the Ottomans win what's the version of present-day Hungary anyway, and by 1529 in the phrase are at the gate, the Ottomans are at the gates of Vienna, and this creates an incredibly febrile political atmosphere in which lots of the reformers, including Luther himself, think the end of the world is coming. So if we separate out those two things, and the echoes are pretty clear, there's a, maybe we'll come on to this a bit later, there's a kind of apocalyptic end of the world-ism around that, but there's also these established, elitist, wealthy, as you say, institutions that have been around for a while and feel like they're just the fabric. You know, people don't, in a sense, for a long time, feel they have a choice about whether to live under this kind of authority. And then suddenly a sense of choice opens up. 
the word we use for it now is populism. Let's let's do this whole thing without talking about populism. But that that feeling that established institutions that are ubiquitous and inevitable suddenly start to feel not just in religious terms but political terms contingent and challengeable. Is that the thing that you think connects then with now? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a way of seeing the Reformation in which it's not a, a sudden development. And I think that is perhaps important for thinking about what the parallels are now, because in one sense, what Luther starts is a successful Reformation in the West of Europe. And actually, you could argue there's already been a successful Reformation in in Bohemia in the previous century. And there's, you know, there's any number of proto-Luthers. Luther is the successful reformer in this sense, though, could then think about whether... what success possibly means in this context but I think that one of the things that really does stand out when you think about the comparisons with now is the political rebellion that came from what in Luther's case was fundamentally in fact you might say exclusively a spiritual rebellion against the church. Luther is not interested in the politics of it but very quickly Luther loses control of the reformist movement that he is in some sense brought to life what we see in, in the Holy Roman Empire is something that's called sometimes the Peasants' War or the Farmers' War, which is probably the most significant political rebellion that there is in Europe against established authority in terms of the involvement of large numbers of people before the French Revolution in the 18th century. So what we see is, is that these new ideas that are put there by Luther, including you know, the idea of there's no hierarchy in the church, or there should not be a hierarchy in the church, that all believers are part of the, the priesthood, gets turned into a political idea, and ideas about rights and equality. And you get people who are extremely fed up with the material status quo, using these arguments as a reason to tear political authority down. Now, this rebellion was in the end unsuccessful. I mean, several hundred thousand farmers were simply slaughtered by the armies. This is not a story that ends well. That part of it doesn't. Um, anyway, but I think that what we can see is, is that how quickly something that starts as one thing in terms of a rejection of spiritual authority and essentially about questions of theology turns into a much broader political rebellion. And it does so, I think, in significant part because of the way that Luther attacks the material corruption of the church. And that's the thing that allows what is essentially a spiritual rebellion to move into the realm of the political. So just before we bring John in, just to be clear, and again, we're not. there were quite a few discussions, radio programmes, I was involved in one last year, about Brexit and the Reformation and whether we should draw just the direct parallel between what's happening in the UK and what might have happened in the first half of the 16th century. But corruption is a perennial feature of politics, railing against corruption. I don't think there's ever been a period where there haven't been some people saying this is a rotten system. But it's acute at the moment. We have been living through a time post the Cold War, but going back further than that, where some institutions are sufficiently stable that they look inevitable. And that then breeds a, a certain sense that these institutions also become a cover for exploitation and the hoarding of power and wealth. When you look at now, which are the analogous institutions that you think are driving this feeling that basically there is a setup here which is cover for wealthy people to get wealthier? I think that this is where the parallels get to be quite difficult because, I mean, uh, 
Maybe it's, we're sitting in one, yeah, right? But I would say, I, University I, of Cambridge? I think that, that in Not some... Not the wealthy people get wealthy. In some but. sense, universities are the best parallel okay. because of the fact that they are long-standing institutions. If you're going to find something that looks like the Roman Catholic Church in, in 1517, then you can't, I think, have something that isn't centuries old as a point of comparison. Now, you can argue about like how long the Roman Catholic Church takes on the kind of form that is being rebelled against in, in 1517, and I think it has to involve some elements of the Roman Church's temporal power, which really takes it to the 11th century. But if we were going to try and turn this into a reaction against democracy or the European Union, I don't think that the comparison really stands up. I think in terms of Brexit, that actually there are two things that where I think there are some parallels, but they're not quite of what I've been talking about so far. The first of them is about England's geopolitical position in Europe, and this goes back to the fact that the Roman Catholic Church is making this was making this claim to supranational authority. And I think that the, the interesting parallel here is actually the failed negotiation of Henry VIII and his advisers with the Pope, which went on for six years between 1527 and 1533, where Henry's advisers, starting with Thomas Worsley, were trying to get the king an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And these negotiations drag on. They can't succeed, really, because the Pope is under the influence of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, who is the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. So England's negotiating position in this is extremely weak. And the result in the end is that, inspired by Thomas Cromwell, who's taken over from Wolsey, is is that Henry and Cromwell say enough and they end the claim of Roman Catholic authority, the claim of the papacy and of the Holy Roman Emperor for that matter, in England in terms of jurisdiction. And I do think there is a parallel there with Cameron's renegotiations of the European Union in, in that he embarked upon a negotiation that couldn't succeed and it couldn't succeed because Britain and the position of a European Union in which the euro has come to the fore simply didn't have enough influence and didn't matter enough for that negotiation to succeed in terms of what Cameron needed and that England was historically always weak in relation to the papacy. There was only ever been one English pope, Pope Adrian I think his name was and, and he spent most of his life in, in France, that England was not in a position to influence the papacy and I don't think that Cameron's government was in a position to influence the future of the European Union under conditions in which the Eurozone crisis had started. The difference, though, is that Cameron didn't say enough. He said no. enough of the negotiations, but he came back and said we, we, they'd been successful. No, but you could say that the electorate turned around and said... So the electorate is Henry VIII. One of the things that struck me about Luther is his astonishing courage. And in a secular world where most people, at least in this society, have grown up without living under a religious authority. It's very hard for people to actually understand the extent of the challenge that he posed because the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages was it was not just an institution, but it was, in a sense, a way of life. And to challenge it was kind of unthinkable. And for me, that, that is an echo of the present in the sense that we have been operating for since the 1970s under economic regimes and economic theories and policy practices which take some things as being unchallengeable. And the result of that is the evolution of globalisation and its acceleration with, with internet technology and other kind of things. And you get to the point where, I would say in 2007, say, where almost nobody in the Western world 
thought that it would be wrong to rescue the banks, for example, because you could define ideology as what determines how you think when you don't know your thinking. And some things become unthinkable in any ideological climate. And I think that in that sense, it's wrong to look for institutional correlates to the Catholic Church in Luther's time. You have to look in terms of, say, ideology. I remember a moment around 2007 when it was revealed that two American companies, which are contractors to the Home Office, I guess, or to the Ministry of Justice, they were charging the government for electronic tagging of prisoners and of people who were either in prison or dead. And this had been going on for some years, and it was clearly an absolute scandal. And suddenly the story breaks, and a government minister is hauled in front of Eddie Mayer on on the 5 o'clock PM programme, and the government minister says, well, this is absolutely outrageous, and we're going to have a, an inquiry, and we're going to get to the bottom of this, and scandal, and so on and so forth. And then Eddie said something like, I notice that these two companies are on the list of preferred contractors for other government contracts. I take it they will now be removed. And the minister replied, oh, no, that would be unthinkable. And at that moment, you see what the power of a particular ideology is. And I, my feeling about the Catholic Church in Luther's time is that not only had it institutional power and political power, but it also had this this hold over people's minds. But in a way, that's where this breaks down, because there isn't an analogy for the Catholic Church. So the things that we're talking about now exist in these different places. So universities, which, I mean, people might be surprised that they're, on one level, the closest thing that we can find to this because they've been around for so long. And there is clearly a lot of resentment, particularly in the United States, and these astonishing figures now in in Republican public opinion as to the extent to which people feel that a college education is part of what drives the enemy in American politics. But no one's going to claim that universities occupy the position that the Catholic Church did. And, And I don't think anyone feels that standing up to a university puts your life at risk and that sense of danger even standing up to the banks it's you have to be very brave and the few people who did before 2007 were very brave but they were brave in the sense they risked ridicule they didn't risk torture and then death the european union is part of this or those sort of established supranational institutions but the different bits that people are pushing back against the ideas the ideology they're in different places there isn't a single overarching political, religious and ideological entity that shapes our world? I don't think there is, but I do think there is some parallel, one parallel that we haven't quite picked up on and it comes down to the question of elites and language and I think this is where it can fit into the, the question about ideology now because one of the things that the Reformation became was a rebellion against Latin as the language of the the Catholic Church. And and that was important because it was a rebellion against the dominance of the Bible in Latin. Now, it isn't true, despite what some people have claimed about this, that there were no vernacular translations of the Bible, though from, I think, the beginning of the 15th century to 1537 in, in England, it was heresy to have a Bible in English. But an important part of the way in which Luther and his successors challenged the, the Roman Catholic Church was because they, or Luther, starting with Luther, translated the Bible directly from Hebrew and Greek into German. And so in challenging the idea that the Roman Catholic Church had, if you like, a a monopoly through Latin of what the Bible was, went back to the the 4th century, and opening up the possibility of going back to the Bible in its original language, and then translating that into national languages, was challenging a, a pretty fundamental 
part of the way in which the, the church maintained its authority and at the same time saying that, look, if you go back to the Bible, these things that the Catholic Church is, the Roman Catholic Church is using to justify its whole authority are simply not in the Bible. In this sense, it wasn't, I don't quite like using the word ideological for it, but it was an ideas-based challenge. But is the analogy there then the technical language of the 21st yeah. century? Because, again, it's the stakes aren't as high, people aren't putting their lives at risk. But there is a feeling often that we live in a world which is dominated by a language that only an elite can understand. It's Sometimes it's the language of economics, or we'll come on to sometimes it's the language of technology, of expertise in how the machinery works. And there's often a call to translate it into a language people can understand, with the assumption that were you to do that, you would also expose it, because a lot of it is gobbledygook, or a lot of it is self-referential, and economists talk to economists in a language only they can understand, which means in the end, actually that they're telling each other things that they want to believe. There is some of that going on now. There is some of that, but it, it operates at different levels. Um, for example, as we sit here at, at the moment, a large chunk of the technology industry, the bit of it that makes central processor units, CPUs or chips, are agonising over two amazingly deep bugs that have been discovered in the chips that process our information. And we're talking now about... 95%, maybe 98% of all the computing devices in the world use these chips. And what's happened is two two major bugs have been found in them. One of them is called Meltdown and the other is Scepter. And there are vulnerabilities which exist because of something that happens very, very, very deep in these processors. And I decided to follow it up and I found that the best technical description of it is published by Google. It's essentially a long, long, long blog post explaining how these two vulnerabilities work. And I'm an engineer and I know a bit about this stuff. But believe me, this stuff is completely impenetrable, even to very skilled and knowledgeable engineers. So it's so, like theology, but it's real. It's real and it's, it's like kind of particle physics or something. It's that difficult. So there's that bit of it. Then there's another bit of it, which is at a different level, where you have obfuscation which I think is deliberate and that applies to things like for example artificial intelligence research to machine learning to stuff about recommendation engines to the way in which uh, platforms like Uber and Airbnb work where the obfuscation is both Orwellian in the sense of using language which denies the reality of the thing for example the sharing economy is an example of that where it's not sharing <laughs> it's platforms putting people in touch with one another and then taking a cut and also determining how those relationships work without acknowledging that they actually hold a lot of power. So you have that kind of obfuscation and that's the one that's politically corrosive, I think. But again, that's, yeah. that's different because that's not some elite language like Latin which draws a veil over it by people. That's the classic modern yeah. political device of taking a language everyone understands, indeed words like sharing that have an almost instinctive emotional force and using them to draw the wool over people's eyes. Yes. But I think that, I mean, the reformers, I mean, Luther did think that the wool was being pulled over people's eyes by the Bible in Latin, because various of the practices of the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, including those around indulgences in relation to purgatory, Luther was arguing, look, there's no biblical actual justification for that. Once you go back and look at the, the Greek, then it's not there. I, I think one of the interesting things, and you can actually see this in England, I think, reasonably clearly in terms of the deep and bitter conflict that went on between Thomas More and William Tyndall, William Tyndall being the person 
at that point who translated the Bible into English is is that it was very much the debate that they had debates a strange word to describe the bitter polemics that they threw at each other was very much Tyndall saying essentially look I want the ploughboys of England to be able to read the Bible and understand it better than you clergy and more being absolutely horrified at the idea that the ploughboys of England were going to read the Bible because he wanted it to be in a language that they couldn't understand precisely because he thought that that was the way of maintaining established authority and that deprivileging Latin as the language of, of the church was something that can be construed, I think, at the time as a democratic rebellion against that. And I do that's why I do think there are some parallels. And clearly there is also a parallel in the sense that it was premised on a technological revolution, which was the printing press and its consequences. So let's do the 90... 90- Let's do today's 95 Theses, John as Luther, because you're talking about both a profound technological change as a means of communication, and it could also communicate ideas about itself, which we'll come on to, but also, as you describe it, a structure of almost theological or ideological power and ubiquity that many people aren't aware of, that dominates and shapes their lives. And you want to do, in a sense, what Luther was doing, which is to show people there are two things going on here. They're connected, but you have to understand both of them. There is an ideology or theology, and there is also a business model, as you call it. This is both about describing and shaping the world and taking a cut. And in Luther's case, it was to point out that the describing and shaping of the world also allowed them to charge people for their sins through indulgences. It was monetizing sin, essentially. And the business model now is not monetizing sin quite, although there's a certain amount of that going on in the pornography industry, but monetizing attention, would you say? I mean, it's, it's as it were monetizing what people are occupying their time doing as they go about their business. That's the business model. But it goes with a, a theology or ideology of the sharing economy or whatever you want to call it. And you have to see the two together. Yes. I mean, the thing that really struck me about Luther when I started to think about him was the amazing ingenuity that he, he manifested in the sense that his challenge to the church was on two fronts. It was on its theology, which we would, I guess, call ideology now, but also on its business model. That was the key thing. So people focus on Luther and indulgences, but there was a lot of outrage about indulgences before Luther. And it, it's the kind of thing that contemporary readers can understand because we we can see that there's a corruption involved in that that's very straightforward but in fact in Luther's case I think he was more interested in theology in fact but he had the the instinct that uh, these two things come together and the indulgences thing really matters to some people especially to folks who are not as it were theologically disposed they really get that so he, he did both now the other thing that I think was really striking about him was the fact that he understood the potential of a particular communication technology. He understood print like nobody else. I think it was that level of ingenuity that really attracted me. Um, For example, in his time, probably the biggest expense for a printer was paper. Paper was really expensive. And conventional communications using printing technology involved the poor printer in actually making a large upfront investment, buying a large pile of paper. That's a very big forward investment. And because Luther understood the way the business worked, he, he, he figured out that actually if you buy one big sheet of paper and you fold it eight times, then you have a pamphlet. So that, that's his first thing. So that means that the, a printer who was going to publish his stuff would not have to make a huge investment up front. 
The second thing was that he, he decided he would write in German, in the vernacular, so that magnifies the potential market immediately. And thirdly, he had an incendiary style. He was a no-brainer for a printer. He really was, because if, if you publish something by Luther, it was cheap to do, it had a potentially large market, <laughs> and, and it was lively. <laughs> and he, boy, was he lively! And um, but by the time, so 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 that was that was the the, the initial kind of thought. You and can I definitely see the parallels. I, I remember, some... and I, I, this occurred to me when I was sitting in Schönefeld in Berlin, thinking about Luther and reading the New York Times about Trump, and thinking, well, whatever you think of Trump, he really, really understands Twitter. He really does. And then the thought that if Luther were around, he'd have thought, oh, that's interesting. And among other things, he understood the business model, which is this is free. You know, I'm going to get billions of pounds worth of what would count as advertising for nothing. nothing. If I'm lively enough, (laughs) to put it politely. Can I just, so there are 95 of these theses and we'll post the link. They're all worth looking at, reading, thinking about. Just putting out a few, I'll throw at you and you can gloss them or whatever. 34. Technopoly is the new secular religion of the West. Technopoly is, is the worship of technology. And in a secular world, I think that's, that's the religion we have at, at the moment. And one sees it very vividly in the way, for example, that social media companies have responded to the challenges that they're now facing in relation to their roles in Brexit and in the election of Trump. It all comes from the fact that they have a business model which depends on monetizing user engagement. And it turns out that the thing that really engages users tends to be stuff that most of us find disreputable and disturbing and anti-democratic and all kinds of other stuff. Now, there are two ways of approaching that. One of them is to say, we take responsibility for this and we are going to do something about it. And the other way to do it is, say, is to say, technology will fix it. So one element of, the, of technopoly as a, as a religion is the belief that whatever the problem is, there is a technological solution. And that has become what some people now call solutionism. It's the dominant ideology of, of the tech industry, which is that there is nothing on earth, no human problem, no political problem, no environmental problem that cannot be solved simply by the application of this technology to it. And in a way, that then does lead to this thought about the Reformation, which is the challenge is to think outside a mindset yes. which otherwise colonises all thought. Yes. And that's partly what the Reformation was, wasn't it? It was a challenge to people trying to give them a perspective to see how they lived from outside a framework which shaped how they live. I think, yes, and I think that, I mean, the Reformation is about many things, but one of the It's things, not just about how yeah, people live, I know yeah, that. It's about how they're going to live after they die. Yeah, as one well. of the things that, that it's about from the point of view of the Reformers is to show the contingency of the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, the, the Church had claimed its authority as universal, that it was the universal Christian church. But actually, by the time we get to 1517 and Luther, there's already three parts of Christianity, at least. And so what is claimed as a universal is actually much more contingent than that. Going back to the Bible in Latin, I mean, this is held up as you will accept the Bible in Latin as if the Bible were written in Latin, but it's not. The Catholic Church is maintaining the authority of a translation of the Bible that goes back to the the fourth century. It's not the authentic Bible of the Christian Church, because that was written in what the New Testament was written in Greek. And so I think that one of the things that the Reformers are doing, as I say, is is to hold up a light to this universal, as if being presented to people as the inevitable framework in which they live their lives, and say, no, it's actually 
it's actually political in some sense and the church's authority is actually political but another contingency is a lot of this is driven by anniversary so we are now well we're a little bit on from the 500th anniversary of the 95 theses so in 2008 the thing that struck everyone on the 150th anniversary of the publication of the communist manifesto at the height of the financial crisis was we need something to show us the contingency of what had seemed to be ubiquitous marxism is the other one we we take our pick depending on where we are and what newspapers have to fill their pages up with because every year i always love that thing at the start of the year where they publish the coming anniversaries of the year so you know on august the 17th it's the 100th anniversary of whatever that's what we're going to be talking about john 73 technology is the art of arranging the world so that you don't have to experience it this is a, something that comes i think from martin heidegger originally but i think it applies most vividly at the moment to smartphones and social media in the sense that they have become devices for really absorbing people's attention and diverting them from actual interaction. A vivid example of that was a few years ago when the Rolling Stones played Glastonbury on Saturday night. And a very you, religious experience. If you're a Rolling Stones fan, as I am, this, this was a really big deal. And my children were all there. Um, Were you there? I wasn't there. I was like a respectable middle-aged father. I was watching it on TV. But the the point was that for those who who believe... Believe in the Rolling Stones. Believe in the Rolling Stones. (laughs) And there are still some of us. But this was a really important occasion because it's clear, given their their age and biological leakage, as we call it, then they're not going to do this again for all experience. Oh, I think they might go to Silicon Valley and you'll turn out they'll be doing it for another 100 years. Well, that's true, yeah. That's true. There is a company in Silicon Valley whose company mission is to make death optional. But anyway... And to make the Rolling Stones eternal. Wow. Anyway, but there's this Saturday night, the Stones are, are in Glastonbury, and and it's magical. It's this kind of thing that doesn't happen very often. I'm watching it, and I, and I was thinking, everybody there, as far as I could see from the TV coverage, instead of being in the moment, they had their smartphones up, like that. It was really weird. And I was thinking, they're not experiencing this. They're doing something else. It's detaching them from it. And then you go out and you go into a cafe and you see five or six teenage girls who are meeting to have coffee and each of them is actually they're not interacting they're reading their phones and and I think this is a a profound truth about this stuff which is that it provides us with ways of avoiding human contact. The difference in a way is that the, the earlier versions and whether we're talking about Marxism or Lutheranism the claim is that this is to distract people from the horror of their lives in some sense. It's it's to draw a veil over the fact that their earthly existence is so unbelievably grim. That's not the case here in the examples. You're, give, you're in a sense saying this is distracting people from what ought to be the joy. From what ought to be the joy in the first place. And also it's distracting them from some things that society probably needs in terms of human engagement. I mean, on this podcast a while back, you had James Williams, the Oxford computer scientist. And we hope to have him back again soon, I should well, say. But he, I mean, he, his view was that by monopolising our attention, it's doing something serious to the deliberative capacities of, of democracies. That may be a romantic view about democracy, but nevertheless, that's what he believed. I think it's true. A very interesting case in point was Sherry Turkle, who teaches at MIT, very distinguished woman, knows the technology well, is also trained as a psychotherapist and so on. And at a, at a talk she gave here, she was musing about the strange paradox that she has office hours. She teaches at MIT, she has office hours on her door. Her students don't want to come and see her. And she was puzzled about this and started investigating and interviewing the rest of it. And it turned out that the reason they don't want to see her is because they're terrified of her. They're terrified of exposing their ignorance. What they want to do is they want to communicate with her by email. 
And what you discovered from the interviews is that what they want to do is they want to present their edited selves. They do not want to have a direct interaction with another human being where they would have to expose their vulnerabilities. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I think there is, listening to John, I think there is a quite direct parallel with the Reformation and what Luther was saying here. And in, in, in that is, is, is that Luther and the Reformers were saying that the church was completely distracting people from Christ. That the church has all this paraphernalia, you know, images. Actually, I should say Luther wasn't against images. Some of the other Protestants were pilgrimages, art, shrines, and that actually Christ as the Son of God and as the model for a Christian life, of a, a life lived in which there were duties to the poor, people trying to follow the example of Christ in their daily lives, is something that the church had completely completely and utterly forgotten about so that the authenticity if you like of the Christian experience as far as Luther was concerned had actually been destroyed by the church you're right and I'm wrong I because I'm not a religious person I forget that it is about joy for a lot of people yeah 92 this is the one I really like because I don't know what it means the internet may turn out to be the just the terminal phase of the Gutenberg parenthesis which to me does sound like a Bourne movie, the Gutenberg Parenthesis. It's a good title. Yeah, it's a great title. The, the Gutenberg Parenthesis was an idea which has its origins probably in Marshall McLuhan as well. It's the idea that a parenthesis is, is essentially a subordinate clause in a sentence bordered by two brackets. And the, the idea was that for almost all of human history, our communication has been oral. And then along comes Gutenberg, and he creates this technology which enables a new kind of communication. Oral and visual, presumably, as well. Yeah, it was also, visual, I mean, but, but, symbol but, but, signs. Yes, and then along comes Gutenberg with this technology, which eventually enables and becomes to be the dominant form of serious communication, where everything is contained within a book, it's, it's very orderly, it acquires an, an authority, and so on. And so we have this period of several centuries in which our idea of what's solid and what's, what's real knowledge and the rest of it is encased in a, in a book. And the idea behind the parenthesis thesis is that actually that period is now coming to a close. And it's because of digital technology and what it's doing. For example, a lot of the concern about being in a post-truth society, whatever that might mean, is partly to do with that. But it's also, in other areas, you see that the basic unit of cultural communication has been coming down in size for a while. For example, you, if you were interested in music, you thought about albums, but now everybody thinks about tracks. Or bits of tracks. Or bits of tracks, even. So, and we, we go from sound bites to tweets. There's some kind of relentless progress brought on by the technology, which is bringing us back to something more like the pre-print era. For example, a very popular app at the moment is a messaging app where the messages are designed to be ephemeral. Well, that looks awfully like a different kind of communication world. There have been lots of theorists about this, like Walter Ong and others, who have argued that we are moving into some kind of different sort of orality again. So when people express horror, which they've been doing in the last week, about the fact that Donald Trump doesn't read, you know, it's one of the things that has become almost a meme of this moment of, oh my God, we live in his world and he's not a reader. 
there's something it struck me a bit there's something a little hypocritical about it because we don't a lot of us don't read so much that's right yeah mm. but but we we privilege reading yeah. and we privilege knowledge in, encased in book type containers but it may be that we you know we're coming to the end of that for a, a dominant chunk of humanity that's what the Brents is saying so Gutenberg about. to Zuckerberg really is the yeah, the, bra- the bracket in the human story. So can I put up one more to finish, one more kind of parallel between then and now, and the one that seems to me to be the most resonant one in a way, which is we live in a world now which is this weird mixture of universal experiences, ubiquitous experiences, and incredibly personal, micro, discrete experiences. So things are either shared, for want of a better word, by everyone, or they're unique to the individual. So we live at a time where Donald Trump is the most famous human being in history. It's true. So, I mean, he literally is bigger than Jesus. You know, the Beatles weren't, but he is. He's more, As people keep telling him, and I think it's not a good thing to tell Donald Trump, that he's the most famous, in name recognition terms, human being who has ever lived. And everyone on the planet is thinking about him, more or less. Not quite, but as close to. And at the same time, we are all inhabiting information spaces and interpersonal spaces, which are incredibly discreet. And that seems to me that those things do exist on either side of the bracket, potentially. There's something almost medieval about this, that our lives are macro and micro in ways that they weren't for most of the modern period, where our lives were shaped by, among other things, communities, states, areas of a shared national language, areas of a shared national experience. And we are, I don't know if we're going back or going forward, to a time where it is more either everything or everything is broken up. There is a sense in which we tend to lock ourselves into what we now call filter bubbles, and that's a measurable phenomenon. It does it does happen. I'm not convinced that that's entirely new. We've always tended to... No. Uh, and, and is a very old human characteristic. And, and I'm partly describing, as you would say, network effects and power laws and so on, or long-tail phenomena. You know, the thing about the long-tail world is a few things dominate... And then lots and lots of small things proliferate and the middle vanishes. But to me, that's also a kind of medieval world. I think that it depends, though, on the everything bit. I mean, in some sense, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, okay, that's a pretty Catholic view of what the medieval world... (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and that was the thing that was being reacted against. ...was like. And actually, you know, despite what the, the Roman Catholic Church or wanted people in Latin Christendom to believe then there wasn't a uniform Christian church, even in Europe, let alone the fact that actually this idea that Christendom and Europe were equated with each other was also historical nonsense in terms of the presence of the church in the Christian church in other parts of the world. So in one sense, I think there is a parallel between a claim to universality that when you look at it, doesn't really stand up. And if we look at today's world, is it can seem that everybody's thinking about Donald Trump, but actually they're not. There's also another parallel which, if you're not religious or you haven't had a religious background, you won't see. I was brought up in a devout Catholic home in a society which was uh, overwhelmingly Catholic and where the church wielded real temporal as well as spiritual power. One of the things that's imprinted on your mind if you're brought up as, as, as a Catholic in that environment is that everything you do is seen by God. But everything which means that you always have this question in your mind, um, even if you're doing something secret, so to speak, then God knows. Okay. 
And now we find ourselves in a in a world where where almost everything we do is certainly logged and possibly monitored by agencies, the companies, or by the security agencies of of powerful states. That's the first bit of it. But the really disturbing thing is that what we're thinking deep in our hearts is also available. And the reason we, we now know that is because the research on what people search for on Google is amazingly revealing. People search for stuff on Google that are expressions of their innermost fears and their innermost thoughts. And that never appears on social media, the sort of stuff. And it leads to all kinds of interesting discoveries. One of them is that, for example, people who are troubled about their sexuality will search for, for help and information on, on Google. What that means is that Google ha has created a map, can create a map, but there is a map, which maps these kinds of questions about sexuality onto states in the United States which have different views about gay marriage. And you find that, for example, in states where the prevailing atmosphere is very hostile to same-sex relationships and the rest of it, that there's a very high level of Google inquiries about that. So this is really, I think, the most interesting and also the most distressing thing about this technology, which is that it enables somebody, in this case a corporate agency, possibly also state agencies, to know not just what we read and what we do and the rest of it, but actually also what we're worried about. There are so many things I want to carry on talking about, and we have we haven't run out of time because podcasts never run out of time, but we've run out of time. But let's talk about that some more, including corporate agency. John, we've talked about four of John's theses. There are 91 others. It's a work in progress. You're kind of fleshing them out as we speak. We'll post the link on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. They're all well worth reading. Next week, to change tack, I'm delighted to say we're going to be talking to the double Booker Prize winning novelist Peter Carey. He is in Cambridge to speak at the Cambridge Literary Festival next Tuesday. I think there are a few tickets left. If you go to the Cambridge Literary Festival website, you can find out how to get those. I promise you it won't be all so damn beat in 2018. Do join us for some more optimistic talk. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. So when you said discrete, you meant E-T-E -E rather than E-E-T? Probably. I'm not, I'm not a literate person. No, no, What's the I mean, difference? I mean, What's the well, difference the, between E-T-E -E and The difference is discrete is a separate, separate yes, thing. Yes, I meant separate rather than sort of let's be discreet and not tell anyone that we think universities are the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> 21st century. That kind of discrete. Well. Populism, let's not. Oh, it's really all going well. Uh, <laughs> 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.